Let's now turn to the Word of God and think for a few minutes about what God's plan is for the nations of the world. I've talked a little bit right now about the crisis that we have a front row seat in, in Turkey, this migrant crisis, refugee crisis, the numbers are huge. That's just a symptom. It's a symptom of a world that is in the midst of crisis, a world that's hurting and suffering. We have nations all over the world that have completely failed, that are in the midst of war. Afghanistan is a terrible place for many people, and so, of course, they're fleeing. There's no economic opportunity. Uh, there's, uh, there's oppression. Syria has been in the midst of this terrible conflict, conflict for years. So it's no wonder people are fleeing, are having to leave. And we could, we, could, we could count over and over again the places in the world that are like this, Iran, Venezuela. You know, why is it that so many Venezuelans are fleeing the country? Because the country has been a mess for so long. So the migrant crisis is really just a symptom of this much bigger global crisis that we're all a part of. And, of course, that global crisis is not something that here in the United States we are at all immune from. We may live in relatively peaceful communities, but we know very well that we have been through a terrible pandemic that we have not yet counted the full cost of for our society, that we live in a society that is deeply divided. Where's the church in all this? Well, in Turkey, the church is tiny. I mean, it's, there's about 7,000 Protestant believers in the entire country of 83 million people. That, that is unimaginably small, right? What that means is that here in South Hadley, if the statistics were the same, you would have one Christian in the entire town, right? Think of that, one Christian. You know, what chance is there of really making a difference? What chance is there that the rest of the people would have any chance to actually hear about Jesus? The church is tiny. The church is also divided. We just received a, a plaintive prayer request from one of our colleagues there, two senior church leaders in Turkey fighting with one another. Does this, this sound familiar? Yeah, fighting with one another. He's praying that there'll be reconciliation. So there's division within the church, even though it's so small. And then, of course, as everywhere, uh, false teaching is viral, right? Everywhere. So you get churches growing up, but are those churches actually teaching truth or not? So the church seems to be in crisis as well. And from Turkey, we then look back at the West, at Canada, at the United States, and, and we think, well, the church there is strong, right? The church here is deeply divided, right? We've seen that. It's painful to many of us how divided it's been. So many churches have been consumed by politics in different ways, and it's dividing people, it's dividing families. And then false teaching is viral here as well. Right? So many of the largest churches are not churches that are faithfully teaching the gospel. So the church 
is in crisis. So we have an international and national crisis, but underneath that is a spiritual crisis. That's the world we live in, a world in crisis. And it's a world that the prophet Isaiah would have found familiar. He would have said, yeah, I know what's that, what that's like. The prophet Isaiah was living in Jerusalem. He was one of the great poets and prophets, political commentators of ancient Israel. He's a brilliant writer. And he's sitting in Judah, in Jerusalem, and here's a little bit of a geography lesson for you. You'll need that in order to figure out where he is. Okay, let's imagine that Judah is your stained glass window. Okay, Jerusalem, we'll put it right in the center. So there's Jerusalem. That's where Isaiah is. As he surveys his world, what does he see? If he looks north to where the dove is, he's looking at Assyria. Assyria, during his time, this is 8th century B.C., 2,700 years ago, Assyria was the great world superpower, and they were not like a dove. They, you didn't want to mess with Assyria. Assyria was brutal and constantly invading, and when they invaded, they took you prisoner, they marched you, you know, in, as captives back to Nineveh, Right? And they killed a lot of people along the way. They were absolutely brutal. If you look to the south, to the keyboard, I guess, we have Egypt. Right? Egypt is to your south. That's the other, the other great superpower of the time. And then farther south than that, we'll call it the floor is Kush. That would be modern-day Ethiopia. Right? So we have Kush and Egypt to the south. If we go to the right, to the door that leads into the secret room there, right? <laughs> that only pastors can go into, right? Uh, that secret room there, that's where Babylon will come out of to the east. And eventually, Babylon will come and take Assyria down, right? But they're, they're another great rising superpower as well. Then closer at home, you have all of these little states. You have to the north, Damascus, Syria. You have to the, to the east, Moab. And then you have a little, just below that, you have Edom. Then a little bit farther, you have Arabia, right? And so you're surrounded, and are these... Uh, nice nations to be surrounded by. They are not nice nations to be surrounded by, right? This is a world of superpowers going at each other, of brutal armies and conquest. And here's Isaiah sitting in Jerusalem, which is this tiny little kingdom chosen by God, but beleaguered, right? Surrounded by enemies, as you sit there in Jerusalem, you're Isaiah, what kind of uh, king do you want? What kind of a Messiah are you going to hope for? The answer to that is really easy. You want a warrior Messiah. You want a king who will fight for you. And for the first half or so of the book of Isaiah, that's what you get. Right? We can march through. It's actually a great story. Starting in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14, verse 25. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains, I will trample him down. Great. Assyria is gone. Right? And then 
29, do not rejoice, all you Philistines. I forgot the Philistines. They're the, they're the flowers there, right? Constant thorn in the side of Judah. And, and in verse 29, do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken from the root of that snake will spring up a viper. So the, the Philistines are going to be gone. And then the beginning of chapter 15, the first verse, our in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Moab's gone. Great. Go on to chapter 17, first verse. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. Damascus is gone. Chapter 18, woe to the land of whirring wings along the rivers of Cush. Right? There goes Cush. The dominoes are falling one by one. Chapter 19, verse 1. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. There goes Egypt. Starts to pick up speed in chapter 21. In chapter 21... Uh, we have Babylon going down, and then Edom going down, and then Arabia going down. And if you're Isaiah, sitting at the stained glass window in Jerusalem, looking around and hearing this message from God, how are you feeling? Go, you know, yeah. You know, they're all, you're taking down our enemies. Here's the warrior God who is acting on our behalf. And this... This is all great stuff, isn't it? If you're sitting there, have we forgotten anyone? Chapter 22, verse 5. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision. A day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Where's this valley of vision? Look down to verse 8. The Lord stripped away the defenses of Judah, and you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. Judah? Judah doesn't get spared from this judgment of God. You might cheer this warrior God destroying all your enemies. He's coming for you too, right? This, from the perspective of Isaiah and the people of Jerusalem, would have been a shocking message to hear, but it then all culminates in chapter 24. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken his word. The judgment of God, if we want to worry God, the judgment of God is total. No part of the earth and no person escapes this judgment of God. And so by the time we come to the end of this list of what God is going to do in judgment, it is a pretty bleak picture. Totally plundered the world will be. It is a picture of tumult and trampling and terror. Those are Isaiah's words. Tumult and trampling and terror. Some of you, I don't know, some of you might like classical music. Does anybody here like classical music? 
There's a few, right? Okay, if you don't like classical music, I'll have something else for you in a minute. But this is for the people who like classical music. In some classical pieces, right, you get these amazingly sort of loud, almost violent sections, right? I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Gustav Mahler's Sixth Symphony right now, right? So, and it's, it's got this great sort of stomping rhythm at the beginning. Um, I, I heard someone talking about this and saying, this is a great thing if you have kids, you get them to stomp around the house to this stomping, right? So it's got this great, and it's, it's this sort of loud and violent. And then, you have to wait a while, but about seven minutes in, there's another theme that starts. And it's quiet. And it's sweet. And it's almost joyful, sometimes a bit plaintive. The book of Isaiah is like that as well. We've seen sort of the violence of it, the judgment of it. But along with that, you get this other theme unfolding, and, and we see it beginning in chapter 9. In chapter 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and what will this light be? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then in chapter 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch, just a little shoot's going to come up. And then in same chapter, verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him. Chapter 19, we get this you know, we've seen how Egypt was, was the enemy and was supposed to be destroyed. Well, listen to this in chapter 19, verse 1. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Sorry, sorry, I've got the wrong place. 19, verse 19, that was the earlier one. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord and its border. And then chapter 21, verse 9. Uh, no, I got it mixed up again. Same chapter, 19, verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. An altar in Egypt and the Assyrians and Egyptians, the great enemies, worshiping together with the people of Judah? Wow. This is amazing. And this other theme then unfolds gradually, and that finally is the theme that we pick up in chapter 42 that Pastor Joe read. In chapter 42, what do we read? Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. How will he bring justice to the nations? He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. We love flashiness. You know, we love people who have bombast and, you know, can dominate, right? We, we're, we're drawn to them. People who will fight for us. Here's another model here. Someone who is quiet 
and gentle and kind. Someone who doesn't need to raise his voice. Who, when, when there's someone who's bruised, doesn't break them, doesn't harm them, but heals them. Where have we seen someone like this? Well, Isaiah hadn't seen him yet, but we have. We have, we've seen someone who was born in poverty, who lived a, a life that didn't draw attention to him at all at the beginning, who, who actually tried to, in many ways, get away from people. We have a person who's a king whose courtiers were fishermen, fishermen, right, who, who gathered children and said, let the children come to me and gathered them on his knee. A king who, when he entered the city that belonged to him to be named king, rode gentle, riding on a donkey. A king who, when he was put on trial falsely, never spoke in his defense, never said anything, was silent before his accusers. A king whose only crown was a crown of thorns. This king, the same warrior king that Isaiah was talking about earlier, this king hangs on a cross. That's where we see the warrior God. So we have these two themes in Isaiah. We have God bringing judgment, the warrior God that we wanted, to all of these nations. And then we have this quiet theme that ends with the king of the, all the earth hanging on a cross, and how do we bring these together? How do we reconcile them? This is a problem throughout much of the Old Testament, but it's a great problem to struggle with. And you know what? I don't think theologians, if you went back hundreds of years, medieval theologians would have thought this was a problem at all. They would have thought we were silly to think it was a problem because they knew that it actually, what was going on on that cross where Jesus was hanging was a great battle. And on that cross, a battle was being fought, and the fight was between God and the devil, God and sin, God and death, the true enemies, and that was the battle that mattered. And the battle was for your soul and my soul and the souls of all the other people that God has created throughout the world. That's where the real battle is, friends. The battle is not, the real battle isn't Assyria. The real battle isn't Babylon. The real battle isn't Egypt. And for us, the real battle isn't China or Russia. The real battle isn't in Ukraine. Wherever there are battles, the battle isn't political, right? The enemies aren't those people. No, the enemies are sin and death. Those are the enemies, and those are the enemies that Jesus came to fight and defeat, and the way he did it was through gentleness, kindness, sacrifice. That is exactly what God calls us to in whatever sphere of ministry you have, 
whether it's with neighbors, you know, whether it's beyond that, that is exactly the kind of ministry that he calls us to. You know, John Bunyan has this great classic book called The, the Holy War. I knew it as a child through a retelling of it by a gifted storyteller named Ethel Barrett. Uh, and there's those recordings you can still find somewhere. I, I have one that I preserved from my childhood. And it is this amazing story of a battle for a city. Your soul is a city, right, with walls and with gates. And that city has been taken over by sin and by the devil. And what happens in the holy war that John, John Bunyan's story is that God comes with an army to besiege it. But it's an army of love. It's an army of gentleness. It's an army of kindness. There's another picture that enters my mind that helps to illustrate this as well. If you ever come to visit Istanbul, one of the places that I would hope that you would see would be an ancient church. It's called the Church at Kora. And in this church, there is a marvelous fresco. And in this fresco, Jesus is reaching down. On one hand, he's grasping for the hand of Adam. And on the other hand, he's grasping for the hand of Eve, and he's pulling them out of the grave. It's just a marvelously evocative, active picture demonstrating how Jesus, the risen Jesus, but having bought us on the cross, reaches down and rescues us from sin and from death. So the battle isn't out there somewhere. It isn't Assyria. It's not Egypt. It's not Babylon. These are just the symptoms. The battle is for our souls because the battle is not against flesh and blood. So where does this all end? Where does it all take us in the end? Well, Isaiah will tell us that as well. There are other places in Scripture we could go. But Isaiah chapter 25 gives us a picture of where it all ends. Chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The story ends with a great feast. A great feast of worship in which the people who God has saved from death and from sin are all gathered together and he's invited them to his table and they are from every nation. There will be Turks there, there will be Egyptians there, there will be Malaysians there, there will be Indonesians there, there will be Ukrainians there, there will be Mongolians there. Every single nation, every single tongue will be represented because God's great work in the world is to redeem a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. Thank you for being part of that. 
Thank you for being part of that. You may live your entire life here in the valley, right, and not travel very far, but you can still be a part of this amazing work of God. And I'm sure you'll hear more about it in the months to come. I'm so glad you're focusing on this for a while. But you can be a part of that by praying. You can be a part of that by giving. You can be a part of that by reaching out to neighbors who are very different from you, who you may be afraid to reach out to. You can be a part of it in so many ways, and this is what God calls us to. So thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for the great mercy and love that you showed to us. We pray that you will fill us with that mercy and love so that it will overflow to the people around us. And give us a vision for the world. Give us a vision for what you want to do in different countries, in the lives of different people. Help our vision to increase of how big your kingdom really is and will be. In Jesus' name, amen.